0: let's go ahead and jump into our passage this morning. We're going to be in Philippians chapter three. Philippians chapter three, starting in verses uh, verse 12. And if you've been coming over the past few weeks, uh, you know that we just concluded a sermon series called Be Sure, where we talked about kind of these uh, eight tests that John presents in 1 John on how we can know that we have salvation in Jesus Christ. And Some of you may have walked away from those eight weeks of uh, preaching encouraged, uh, more confident in your faith, more confident that you do, in fact, have uh, security in Jesus Christ and through his gospel. Some of you, and I hope many of us actually, walked away challenged um, as we consider just the idea of how do we actually know that we are saved. And using those tests that were presented to us to actually confirm that in our own lives. And some of us in this room, if we were honest, may actually have walked away discouraged from that series and just really wrestling with the idea, maybe in a healthy way even, of the idea of, am I actually saved? Do I actually know for sure that Jesus Christ is my Savior? Maybe some of us didn't necessarily walk away thinking we weren't saved, but we knew that we we're saved. We just came to the realization that we're really not that great of Christians yet. Maybe some of us would kind of raise our hands this morning and say, you know, I'm kind of like the Cleveland Browns of Christianity. I'm, I'm, te- okay, we're in Indianapolis. I mean, come on, um, you know, like they're technically a football team, but they're not a very good football team, you know? Um, And so maybe you kind of feel like that, yeah, I'm a Christian, like I know the Lord is my my personal Savior, but man, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm very good at being a Christian, at least not yet. And Chris said something very important a few times throughout this series. He said the Christian life is not about sinless perfection, but it's about consistent direction. And so I want to kind of build off of that concept this morning, not just talking about how do we know that we're saved, but once we know that we are saved and we have confidence in that salvation, how then do we actually grow in that faith and mature as believers? And I would say Paul kind of answers that question for us in our passage today, Philippians 3, 12 through 16. And so before we dive too deep into this passage, I want us just to get a little bit of context because we, we haven't been going through the book of Philippians, but just very quickly right before our passage. In verses 9, and 11, 9 through 11, Paul uh, kind of gives us a little bit of a discussion on the idea of justification. He's making statements about not having a righteousness of his own, uh, not having a righteousness that depends on uh, the law of works, but instead he has a righteousness that depends on Christ. And then he moves on, not talking about justification anymore, but once we go to verse 12, he begins talking about the topic of sanctification. Another way of kind of separating these two passages is that in verses 9 through 11, Paul talks about accepting the gospel, and then in verses 12 through 16, he talks about progressing in the gospel. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and read that passage this morning. Starting in verse 12 of Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would humble our hearts this morning. That we would come before your word ready to learn. Lord, ready to be convicted where we need conviction, to be encouraged where we need encouragement. I pray that through the words of Paul this morning, we would ultimately be drawn closer and closer to you, that we would grow in Christ's likeness that we would grow as mature believers. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Well, I don't know if you can identify with, with this, but when I was 12 or 13 years old, I started going through what some might call the change. And... In that process, I got these terrible growing pains, and uh, so, you know, there would be many, many nights where this aching would kind of start in my feet and work its way up through my ankles and into my shins and my knees, and it would hurt so badly that I couldn't even fall asleep, and, uh, you know, I'd start to tear up, and I'd be so uncomfortable, And my mom would have to come in and just kind of rub my feet down and rub my calves down so that it would just relieve the pain, even a little bit, so that I could finally just fall asleep. And I remember one night, uh, I was crying because of the pain, and uh, she walked in, and she sat down next to my bed, and she looked at me and she said, Joel, you're 19 years old, you're too old for this. That didn't actually happen. Uh, I I did get growing pains, though. That did did really happen. And looking back on that now in my life, of course, I I, I can recognize that those growing pains were actually a sign of something, that they were a sign that I was maturing in my body, that my body was physically growing. And it was a reminder to me that the way I was designed and who I was physically was not meant to stay in childhood. There's actually going to be a day where I was going to grow from being a boy, grow into being a man. And some of you are going in your head, when is that day going to happen? You know, you guys can listen in the lobby. Um, And so Paul here then is acting kind of like a proverbial growing pain to the church in Philippi. He's reminding them over and over again, you as Christians, you weren't meant to stay infant in your faith. You're actually supposed to grow Into Christ's likeness, to grow into maturity as believers. He says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And so, of course, the question for us this morning is what does that mean? How are we supposed to think as mature Christians? And I would say that Paul provides for us here kind of four ways, four concepts for us to really digest this morning and consider what does it mean to grow in Christ's likeness? And so if you're taking notes this morning, I'll go ahead and give those points to you now. The first is the mature Christian understands his power, the mature Christian understands his position, his past, and then his purpose. The mature Christian understands his power, his position, his past, and his purpose. And those four things are going to outline our our time together this morning. So let's just start with the first one. The mature Christian understands his power. If you read with me in verse 12, Paul says here, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, the first thing that I think we should notice in this particular verse is that Paul is making what we could call a causal statement kind of A because B. A has happened because B has happened. And if B did not happen, then A would not have been able to happen. So in this scenario, it is the, that uh, I have made Christ my own because he has made me his own. If Christ had not made me his own, I would not be able to make him my own. Notice that Paul does not use kind of wording uh, like, so that Christ would make me his own. I've made Christ my own so that, or in order that, Christ would make me his own. So what he's saying here is the promises that we have as Christians, the promise unto eternal life that we are able to partake in, it did not begin with you or me, but it began with Christ who has worked in you and me. And this isn't the first time that Paul has made a statement like this. In fact, if you just go back one chapter to chapter 2 of the book of Philippians, he says in verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Now, I've heard this passage read before, and it's kind of used as, as a reason to say, yes, see, you actually work out, you earn your salvation. But typically, those, those people ignore what Paul has to say immediately after that phrase, that he goes on to say, yes, you can work out your own salvation because it is God who is working in you for his pleasure. And so what Paul is saying is, what I do or what you do as a follower of Christ, the good works that we are able to produce in our own lives, it's not because of our own power in any way. It's actually because of the power of Christ. And so in some ways, maybe we could think about this just to really simplify it. It's kind of the chicken or the egg scenario, which came first, right? But Paul's not leaving this up to philosophical guesswork. He's incredibly clear in the point that he's making that first it is Christ who has begun a good work in us, and now it is us who are called by the power of Christ to fulfill the calling that has been placed on us. Now, practically, I would say this has two implications for us to consider. The first is that it gives us an eternal security. It gives us an eternal security. And what I mean by that is, if your salvation or my salvation actually begins with you and me, then just the same it will end with you and me. And if it ends with you and me, it is not going to end well. If, if some of us are honest in this room, there's people in here that cannot even keep a plant alive for more than a month, right? So how much harder is it to actually resurrect your own soul from spiritual death? It's a much larger task that I think would be a little bit more difficult. And yet we are fortunate enough that resurrecting our own souls, bringing life to our souls is is not a task that's actually accomplished in our own power, but it's actually accomplished in the power of God. So Paul reminds us that it doesn't begin with us, it actually begins with Christ. Jesus affirms this idea when he says in John 10 that no man can pluck my disciples out of my Father's hand, and the Father and I are one. That's John 10, 26. The NIV translation of Philippians three twelve actually kind of captures this concept a little better when it says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so both Jesus and the Apostle Paul are kind of painting this picture for us in these two passages of Jesus quite literally taking hold of us holding on to us tightly and telling us that there is nothing, there is no one that could possibly remove us from the Father's grasp. He holds us tightly and yet graciously in the palm of his hand. And there is nothing, no power in this life or in this world that can change that. And so it gives us an eternal security. But the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that it reminds us we contribute nothing to our own salvation. We contribute nothing to our own salvation. Jonathan Edwards, who's a Puritan theologian, has a a quote that really summarizes this whole doctrine quite well. He says, You contribute nothing to your own salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So be encouraged, church. Have a good day. Um, Yeah, that's not like a very encouraging statement when you really think about it, just on, on the surface. It's certainly not encouraging, but it is very important for us to remember because it, remi- it reminds us where our hope actually is. I was thinking about this whole idea actually just Friday when I was watching a lot of these news reports come in online and on TV about this thing that had happened in Noblesville. And I was seeing all of these updates on the news and just thinking how awful it was, grieving this whole thing that had gone down. And I started to kind of ask myself, how is a Christian able to address these issues in a unique way? That was a genuine question I was asking myself. I didn't have an answer suddenly pop into my mind. And I just started to think about that question more and more. Just truly asking myself, how am I as a Christian able to really look at this differently than other people are able to look at it? And as I asked myself that question, I started to be reminded of this passage in Philippians chapter three. And I realized that Christianity, unlike any other religion or belief system in the world, has this unique ability to genuinely grieve with a suffering world, to experience real, deep, emotional sorrow over brokenness and pain. And at the very same time, experience incredible hope, because the hope that you and I have, the hope that you and I share in as believers, is not somehow dependent or rooted in the goodness of mankind. It is rooted in the goodness of Jesus Christ. And so there may be incredible sorrow and incredible grief that happens in the world, but there is an incredible Savior that we know has conquered all things on our behalf. As I was thinking more about this idea of hope in Jesus Christ, I, I started to think about this Coke commercial that I saw a few years ago. And it kind of starts out with the scene of this, this little kind of scrawny kid on a, on a park bench, and he's waiting for the school bus, it looks like, to kind of come by. And as he's waiting on this bench, three or four bigger kids kind of come up, and they're kind of pushing him around, you know, and they're a lot bigger than him. Of course, he's outnumbered. And he just starts to get fed up with it. You know, the more that they're picking on him, he finally stands up and he's clenching his fists and like he's just ready to take these kids on. And you kind of see these kids at first just think, you know, we're, gonna, we're just going to deck this kid. And then all of a sudden their faces kind of start to change expression. And they start kind of looking like they have less and less confidence. They start to contemplate maybe what they're going to do. And they're kind of looking at each other, seeing what each other's going to do. And then they kind of turn around and and run the other way. And what this little boy is not seeing is that his older brother is now standing directly behind him, and he is a big guy, much bigger than the bullies, and he's got this look in his eyes like, if you ever touch my brother, you're going to have to mess with me. And these bullies in that situation make the right conclusion, we are going to lose this fight, and they run the other way. That's exactly the kind of picture that Paul is painting for us here in Philippians chapter 3. Except he's telling you and me, turn around. Look who stands behind you. Look who stands before you and beside you. It is not you or I who fight our battles. It is Jesus Christ who fights for us. And because of that, we can claim victory every single time. So, first, the mature Christian understands his power. Second, the mature Christian understands his position. The mature Christian understands his position. Read with me again in verse 13, just the beginning part here. Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now, when we first read these words by Paul, just just this short phrase, I think the first reaction we should have is actually one of encouragement. Because Paul, who is arguably the greatest Christian to have ever lived, I mean, it's just a clear testament to the greatness of the gospel's power, is actually saying to his readers, hey, I actually don't have it all together yet. In fact, there's three times just in the first two verses that he kind of reminds them of, yeah, I'm not not actually perfect. And in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this. Then he goes, I'm not already perfect. And then in verse 13, he says, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But if you're reading this passage and you're listening to his words, and you kind of take a deep sigh of relief because you think that Paul is somehow leaving room for you to become lazy in your pursuit of holiness, then I don't think you fully understand what he's saying here. And let me kind of try to explain what I'm saying through an example. So when I was a sophomore in high school, uh, I was on the basketball team, and at the end of the season... Uh, we kind of threw an end-of-the-season party. Uh, we went to this kid's house whose, whose dad was a surgeon. And so, of course, this kid's house was very small. Um, they didn't have a lot of nice things. Uh, no, you know, th- the house was gigantic. And the kid's basement was literally just one huge game room with no walls. You know, I mean, just endless. And in the middle of this gigantic room was a ping-pong table. And, uh, you know, we were all down there just kind of hanging out, playing a bunch of games. And my coach at the time, whose name was Coach Ramirez, he, he kind of started talking about his history and experience in the ping pong world. And said, you know, he was really good in college and all this stuff. And the more and more that he talked, I was like, man, I kind of want to take him on. Now, he didn't know that for the past two years, I had had a youth pastor who was also pretty good at ping pong. And every single Wednesday night before youth group, he and I would play for about a half an hour. And over these two years of playing with my youth pastor, I got better and better and better in ping pong. So at this time, I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of at the peak of my ping pong career. And I, can, I should take this guy on. So I say, hey, coach, like you and I should play ping pong, man, like right now, you know, let's do it. And his initial reaction just was kind of, eh, you know, I just want to hang out tonight, you know. I have nothing to prove, basically. And so I respond with um, very intelligent comebacks, like, what are you, chicken? You know? Um, And so eventually, I kind of spur him on to finally say, okay, fine, like, let's play a game. So we're progressing in in this epic battle of ping pong, and it gets to the point where it's 12 to 13. He's up by one point. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, we're a little past halfway in the game. There's a strong possibility that I could beat him. And the entire basketball team is watching this, you know? I mean, there's so many witnesses. It will be written down in the pages of history if I beat my coach in front of everyone. And right as I'm thinking this, he's about to serve the ball, and he goes, wait a minute, I think I've been playing with the wrong hand. And he switches the ping pong paddle from his left hand to his right hand. And he was, in fact, right-handed. And at that moment... I was like, wow, I am in huge trouble. I did not score another point, okay? The game ended 21 to 12. And I can only assume that if he had started with his right hand, there is a strong possibility that the game would have ended 21 to 0, okay? I mean, so at the end of this game, I'm incredibly humbled, uh, incredibly embarrassed, and I just, you know, kind of look up at him and I go, man, you just wrecked me in ping pong. And the most humbling part was really not that he beat me handsomely, but it's really what happened next. He, he just looks at me, puts the paddle down, and he goes, you know, I'm really not that good at ping pong. And then he walks upstairs. Now, in that moment, I don't think he was trying to belittle me, but what he was saying was, hey, in the grand scheme of ping pong history, comparing myself to all other ping pong players that have ever existed and currently exist, I'm actually not that great at ping pong. And so when he said that, I'm thinking, man, I am awful at ping pong. Like, I should just stop right now. There is no point in pursuing a career in ping pong anymore. Like, I am way behind on this whole thing. And Paul is kind of saying a similar thing here in Philippians 3 when when he's reminding the church at Philippi, hey, I'm not there yet. I'm not perfect. I have not attained the goal that I'm meant to attain in this life. And so Paul's words should not just encourage us here. More importantly, I would say it should actually humble us because if a guy like Paul is saying, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet, then you and I are not even close attaining the goal that Christ has set out for us to accomplish. We are way left and way right when it comes to hitting the bullseye of the Christian life. And so we need to be humbled when we're reading Paul's words here, and he's saying, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm not perfect yet. I am not the exemplary Christian that maybe some of you think that I should be or that I am. And so when Paul's reminding us of his own inadequacies, he He doesn't allow room for freedom of sin in our lives. Instead, he reminds us of the high call of the Christian life. Now, on a practical level, if I had kept playing ping pong for the next few years with my coach, I probably would have gotten better and better and better at ping pong. Maybe I even would have gotten as good or better than my coach. And very similarly, in the the Christian life, The best way that you can begin to mature as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, is just to find someone near you that is a better Christian than you are, that has progressed further in their Christian walk, and say, hey, can you and I just kind of play a spiritual ping pong? Maybe even a physical ping pong every now and then. But can you and I just sit down and talk about what it looks like to be a better Christian, to mature in my faith? to draw closer and closer to Jesus Christ, to look more and more like him every single day. So the mature Christian understands his position when comparing himself to Christ. Thirdly, the mature Christian understands his past. The mature Christian understands his past, particularly as it relates to his present relationship with Christ. If you read with me in the second half of verse 13, Paul now says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Now, importantly, when, when Paul says that he forgets what lies behind, I would argue he's he's not claiming to have literally removed the past from his memory. Okay, he understands that his past has shaped him and developed him into who he is. At present, he recognizes that he trusts God in that. What what he is saying, or why, why I would argue that he's not saying that, is really because just moments before in the chapter, in verses five and six, Paul actually recounts a fairly large part of his past. And so he's not literally saying, Hey, never talk about your past. Forget about your past. Your past has no meaning whatsoever. Do not discuss it with other Christians. What he is saying, though, is that your past does not determine or define your present standing before Christ. And when he says forget what lies behind, I want us to understand, too, he's, he's not just talking about all the negative things, but he's even talking about the positive things. At this point, when Paul is writing this letter He's already accomplished a lot of great things in the Christian realm. He's begun many different churches or helped begin many different churches. Throughout his life, he contributes more books in the New Testament than any other New Testament writer. He's well-respected in the church. Of course, he's well-respected in church history, now looking back on his life. But there's also a lot of negative things that could be said about Paul as well before he was a Christian. Before he came to know Christ, he actually persecuted the church. He hated Christianity, and he hated Christianity's Christ as well. In fact, before he was actually converted, he was literally on the road to Damascus on his way to persecute and kill Christians. And so when Paul is saying, hey, forget what lies behind you, he's not just talking about all of the bad things that have happened. He's actually talking about both the bad and the good. As in, don't allow all of what's happened in your past to now somehow define who you are in the present in terms of your standing with God. He calls the Philippians to neither become debilitated by past sins nor stagnant in past victories. Why? Because if you and I tend to focus on our past sins, then we'll start to convince ourselves that we're actually too bad for the gospel. And oppositely, if we start to focus on our past victories, we'll start to convince ourselves that we are too good for the gospel. Now, as I kind of lay out those two different scenarios, you might think that one is worse or better than the other, but I just want to remind us this morning that no matter what line of thinking you go down, the conclusion is the exact same, and that is, the gospel is not for me. And friends, what a, a hopeless life that you and I will live if ever we come to the conclusion that the gospel is for everyone else in this world except for me. And so Paul reminds us, forget what lies behind you. No, instead, strain forward for what lies ahead. Strain for the calling that God has placed on your life now as a Christian and make that your focus in life. Not the good and the bad that is behind you, but the greatness and eternal life that stands before you. My final point is the mature Christian understands his purpose. The mature Christian understands his purpose. If you read in verse 14, Paul says, "...I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Now, Paul mentions this goal here, but he doesn't actually explain what the goal is in this passage. We have to skip down a few verses to verses 21 and, or, excuse me, 20 and 21 to understand what the goal is. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so Paul is reminding us here that the goal of the Christian life is an eternal goal. As I started to think about just this idea of goals, setting goals in our lives, I, of course, naturally kind of was reminded of the idea of New Year's resolutions, right? It's, it's the, the universal goal-setting time in our, at least our country, if not the world. But, you know, January 1 comes up every year, and people begin to set many, many different goals in their lives A very common one is, of course, you know, I'm going to get in better shape. I'm going to go to the gym more. I'm going to eat better. And my wife, Abby, and I always notice, you know, around January and February, there's a lot more people that are going to our gym, a lot of new faces. People are incredibly motivated, very consistent, you know. They're going to go to the gym every day of the week or three or four times a week. They're going to be in there. And as the year kind of progresses more and more, and as we get to about where we're at right now in the year, you start to see some of those new faces kind of dwindle off more and more and more until finally it's, it's kind of back down to the regulars, right? There's a lot of people that start to give up. Some people give up because they just don't have the time that they thought they would to accomplish the goals that they wanted to accomplish. And there's some other people that uh, just kind of remember that, or not remember, but they just kind of conclude that man, I'm just not seeing the results that I thought I'd see in the amount of time I thought I'd see them. And my fear this morning is that many of us kind of view the Christian life as nothing more than a New Year's resolution. And when we begin to lose more and more time, or maybe we begin to see fewer and fewer results in the amount of time that we think we should see more results, we kind of start to give up on our goal and purpose as a Christian. But Paul reminds us that the goal of the Christian is an eternal goal and purpose. It's not going to be fulfilled in this life. And even more, as we strain toward it in this life, it's not going to be an easy task to accomplish. And That's why he's using words like straining forward and pressing on. It kind of paints this picture for us that it's going to be a struggle through and through. Paul is telling us, hey, you know, the Christian life is really not a sprint. It's a marathon, and it ends in eternity. And so my question for us this morning is, do you have a singular goal? Do you have a singular goal? Paul says here, I press on toward the goal, this one thing I do. Is your life's dream to attain the goal that Christ has actually set out for you? Now, I understand that there's many dreams and desires that exist in this world, and there's nothing wrong with dreaming and setting goals, planning, having achievements in in just this life, this physical world that we live in. I understand that all of us in this room have, have dreams and desires of becoming this or that or having this or that or achieving this or that. And, and those things are okay. Those goals are okay to have in this life, even healthy to have in this life. But the problem kind of comes in for us as Christians when all of a sudden, those goals that we have somehow now overtake the goal that we have as a Christian, that one singular goal that Christ has given us as followers. And so my question for us this morning is, Are we willing to give up anything that we have to so that one day we will stand before God? He will look at us and we'll hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have had one goal, one purpose, and you have attained that goal. I just want to conclude really quickly with with a brief story, and some of you may have heard this. There was a a mountain climber called Wilhelm who became an expert at climbing the Swiss Alps, and he lived in a town that was just at the base of the mountain, and um, he he had become incredibly proficient at just knowing kind of the layout of the mountain. He knew every way up, every way down. He'd begun to develop a reputation in the region for just being the absolute best uh, climbing guide that you could ever have if you were traveling up the Swiss Alps. And one day an inexperienced group of climbers started to go up the mountain and unexpectedly the storm started to blow through and it kind of reached the the town below where Wilhelm lived that these mountain climbers had gotten lost in the storm and they didn't have very expert uh, guides and uh, it was not looking very hopeful for them. And so without much delay Wilhelm started to pack up his gear and prepare himself to climb the mountain and find these climbers. And after several days, people started to conclude that Wilhelm himself had probably gotten lost in the storm. And so a group of searchers went out uh, looking for Wilhelm and eventually found his body at the bottom of a cliff where he had fallen to his death. So they had taken his body back to the town where he lived, and they had started to kind of consider how were they going to honor this man that they loved and appreciated so much. And of course, they started to think about what will be written on his grave, how will we bury him, and just respect him in that way. And there was much debate about what they would write on his grave, but they eventually concluded that they would just put on there three words. He died climbing. Friends, my hope for us this morning is that an epitaph like that would apply so clearly to our lives as Christians. That through thick and thin, we kept climbing toward the goal the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, the way that it guides us and protects us, that it, it stretches us and grows us, I pray that we would heed its words this morning, that we would use it to be convicted, to draw close to you. Lord, to to strengthen our walk with you, but more importantly, that in all of that, we would rely on your strength and your power, knowing that the goal that has been set out before us is not one that we're able to achieve on our own, but it's one that you have already accomplished for us, that you continue to accomplish day to day. So Lord, may we depend on you so greatly, so clearly in this life as you continue to push us toward that goal. It's in your son's name that I pray, amen.